What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Dustin Finkel is the CEO of Ancient Ingrained Snack Co also known as Kapop and he joins the podcast today to talk about his vast experience He's done it all from starting out as an investment banker with Goldman Sachs to launching Organic Milk and now running Kapop Dustin has a wealth of experience from identifying, creating, and launching new products to seizing white space in the market and stealing share with newly developed brands. On this episode, Dustin discusses what it's truly like to go from employee to entrepreneur, what routine he's implemented to radically change his life, and how confidence plays into any and everything that you do. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the northern lights. Yes, they saw the northern lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. Dustin, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I am great. I sincerely appreciate you having me. Yes. No, you are someone I've looked up to uh, in, the, in the short time we've been connected. I've already learned a bunch. So I am so looking forward to this interview. But I want to know, here we are. It's a Thursday in April. What's a typical morning look like for you? Or are your days atypical? My days are incredibly atypical. And in fact, as I look at my days, I'm always wondering what the day is going to look like. And that's one of the fun and challenging pieces of being an entrepreneur of a true startup company. You really have no idea what your day is going to look like. And and that's kind of the uniqueness that it takes to be in this world is the ability to adapt. We joke about what the kind of big rock is going to be that day because every day there's a challenge, there's an opportunity, there's something that is going to really take hold of that day. So we come into each day knowing 
these are the 20 things we need to get done, most likely those are going to be put to the side because of something that's going to change the path of that day or that week. Always chaotic for the life of an entrepreneur. I'm curious about you personally, though. Is there anything you do to get your mind right for that day that's going to be all over the place? Yeah, absolutely. Something There's two things that are very big in my world, uh, beyond my family and my kids, obviously. But one is I am hugely passionate about health and wellness, and that takes in two forms. One is I try and work out in the morning. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is I do think it really helps set the foundation for the day. It's so hard to get up, get motivated. I know you've had a podcast on that before, and it was actually very interesting to listen to better ways to motivate yourself. But get up and get working. And so I really like to get a good morning's workout and because you never know what the day is going to hold. So the ability to get that out of the way and know you've accomplished something is is really important to me. The second that I've taken up relatively recently over the last year or so is meditation. And I focus on transcendental meditation. And it takes about 20 minutes. It's a quiet space of, of mantra-based meditation. And I cannot tell you that when I am religious towards it, when I am rigorous and habitual about it, the impact it has on my well-being is just incredible. And those around me notice the difference. So it's something I'm really trying to uh, maintain a focus on. You mentioned how impactful the meditation is. What specifically are, are you feeling? What are, what are the results you receive from that? It's one of those things that's much harder for me to notice than for others to notice. But one of the things that I think I've heard and I do feel is the ability to take a moment between a impact on something and your reaction to something. There's a great book that talks about the word responsibility. And the whole core is that in between the the trigger of an event, you have the response, the ability to choose your response. And I find that very impactful, very appealing, and it's something I strive for because all of us are impulsive in our own ways. And I'm very A-type. I'm very decisive. I like to move fast. And so in a lot of ways, that can be a great uh, complement to our business, but in some ways, it can be a detractor. So I am constantly looking for ways to slow my brain down in those moments while still moving fast. And I think meditation really helps with that. What inspired you to take up meditation? You mentioned you like going fast, A-type personality. You're hearing a lot about meditation recently. I'm just curious what got you into it. You know, it was one of those things where I am so focused on my physical well-being. I also read a ton of what I call business self-help books. And I really love learning more about leadership, about how people have improved their lives and the lives of those around them. And as I was exploring opportunities, one of the things that kept coming up were people who meditate and how impactful it is on their lives. And one of the areas that I really got excited about was this ability to slow down my thinking while still moving very, very fast. And as I looked at some of those core essences of of meditation, it got me really excited. There's also, I've actually heard this. It's funny, there are some investors out there that apparently won't invest in leaders who don't take care of their body and take care of their mind. And I have a much better appreciation of why that is. Being a CEO of a startup company and a founder of a startup company is much more difficult than anything I've ever done in my past. Uh, You know, I've had some incredibly difficult jobs. I was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. You know, the reality of doing this is emotional. It's 
it's a roller coaster and that's with everything going great. And so having the ability to take 20 minutes or 40 minutes a day and just focus on breathing, focusing on letting your mind go, which is virtually impossible, is a huge benefit to those of us who are living very stressful lives. I think you summed it up perfectly. It's like a roller coaster every single day, and that's when things are going great. You you clearly have done a ton of work on yourself. You mentioned some of the business self-help books. Are, are there any that come to mind for you that, that you recommend? You know, I have a bunch, and, and I will tell you first as I think about some of the, the best names is that I take notes on all these books I read, and this is kind of the dorky side of me. I take the notes. I then transcribe them into what I'll call cliff notes. And from those cliff notes, I then actually send the cliff notes to the author. And I say, you know, hey, here's what I took away from your book. Here's what got me really excited about what I learned from your book. And you'd be surprised by how many authors I've had the chance to talk with from doing that. And so just a random tidbit of my kind of weird way of reading books for those of you out there listening. But I think some of my favorite books, one on negotiation that I'm a huge fan of is Never Split the Difference. It was written by the ex-international head of FBI negotiation. And what's great about it is he takes these fun stories, you know, I guess fun is the wrong word, but these interesting stories of dramatic events in his life that he had to negotiate, but then he translates them into the everyday world that you and I live in. Things that are not life and death, but but important to us and, and have significant impact on our lives and our business. And he talks about the idea that win-win mentality that's been taught for years and years is a bit flawed. And he talks about it's not about win-lose. It's not about win-win. It's about trying to optimize the value of the negotiation. And so there's been some tools in there that I've used that are literally 100% effective. It's amazing. I'll do these things, and the response I get immediately from doing those tactics, it's it's almost comical. Um, so that's a that's a great one. A couple other ones that I love. Um, there's one I read years ago, and I I read it every once in a while. It's called Change Your Questions, Change Your Life, and so it's about thinking about being more open to asking questions versus being decision oriented. It also talks about going down kind of two different paths. You kind of go down a negative path and a positive path just by the way we interpret events. So instead of interpreting an event the way you might perceive it, are there questions you can ask to get at the truth, to understand the other person's perspective and help you understand what is really happening and how you can address it? But then there's kind of the ones that everyone knows about that I still love, you know, the seven habits, um, books like those that really, um, really do impact uh, in my life still to this day. Yeah, you mentioned Never Split the Difference. I'm pretty sure that was written by Chris Voss. That book is great. That's one I'll go back to uh, when I know I'm preparing for a negotiation. And that's just so many great practical takeaways in that one. I'm really intrigued, though, about your note-taking process and then what initially started you on reaching out to the authors to give them those notes? The original one was actually change your questions, change your life, because I was so entranced by how simple this book was, yet how impactful it was for someone like me. As I mentioned, I'm very decisive. I move very fast. I act, I think fast and I move fast. And again, as I mentioned with meditation, it's an opportunity to slow down your thinking without slowing down the process. 
You can be decisive, but you can be decisive through questions. You can lead effectively, but you can lead effectively through questions. And it's still something I'm constantly working on on a daily basis. But I was so entranced by this idea that I reached out to the author just to get more input to help share struggles that I'm going through to see if I could get better assistance with some of the concepts in the book. And she was incredibly gracious with her time. And now I joined some webinars she does every once in a while. So that's what started the process. And I figured, hey, if I'm going to take the notes and I'm going to write down everything I've learned in the book, why not share it with the person who read it? At worst, it's a compliment to them. At best, I get the chance to talk to someone who's smarter than me in a particular concept. It's clear you've done a tremendous amount of self-development. I'm interested, what's the percentage breakdown in terms of reading new books, attending seminars in comparison to actually boots on the ground, what you're doing day to day in your business and how much you're learning from that? Oh, well, right now, unfortunately, it's 100-0 or 99-1. You know, I do not have the the time uh, as much as I would like to read. Um, So honestly, a lot of my reading lately has been going back on my notes on the books I have read. And trying to find the concepts that can be applicable to what we're doing day to day now. I mean, this job is, is like I mentioned, harder than anything I've ever done. And our biggest resource constraint isn't money. Money is always a resource constraint for small startups. It isn't the difficulty of what we're doing. It's time. And... I've been one of those people in my career who have taken on roles. I am one of the hardest working people you will ever meet. This is the first time in my life I've actually had to say to someone, I think I'm at max capacity. I really don't think there's enough time for everything we want to do. And I've never said that. And in fact, I used to think that statement was a bit of a weakness. And so, again, this role has been very humbling in that and understanding that does exist and it's different for everyone. And so the opportunity to self-improve has really been coming through this job and this experience. There's so much of that emotional humility that comes. You know, I've been brought to literal tears in this job. And if you asked me to admit that two years ago, I would never say that. <laughs> um, but I've been brought to that level. And that's with everything going great. And so the challenges we face, the obstacles we face, having the commitment and perseverance to go through those, that's That's a huge learning experience, being able to still lead and be positive through those experiences. I'll tell you, there's a huge industry out there of food and health and wellness, but it is really geared towards bigger enterprises. And I used to think a great product, a great leader would win with any company. I really believe now that it's as much perseverance, dedication, and passion as much as anything. You always have to have a good product. I do believe that. But perseverance, dedication, and passion, uh, I think, outweigh them all. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. I think it really goes back to those difficult days. So when those obstacles come and they come in, in buckets, there's literally one after another. We've had weeks where every single day we're we're getting hit over the head with a hammer of an issue. And You know, you're literally in the deep end trying to keep your head above water just to make a delivery happen or just to get your product somewhere or just to make sure things aren't falling through the cracks. And as I mentioned at the beginning, every day kind of throws those at you. And and so you can have a great product and we do have a great product. We're rated five stars and people love our products. We're growing. Retailers love us. Consumers love us. But these challenges of the day to day operation are so monumental and carries so much weight. And it feels like there's an, there's a, 
force out there doing their best to push you down. And so if you don't have that passion and dedication to really persevere and push through, you're going to get knocked down and beat down. And you just have to have that dedication to, to move past those obstacles or this job isn't for you. Yeah, it's clear you have a tremendous amount going on right now. And then I know if you're reading your bio, all the things you're involved in, how do you articulate it as what you do right now? My job description, how would I articulate my job description? Is that what you're looking for? Both role in the company. I know you're an adjunct professor. I mean, how do you manage all of these things? And if someone asks you what you're doing, what's the answer? That's a great question. I think it depends on the day you ask me and my emotional well-being on that particular day. Um, some days I might say I'm trying to stay out of a mental institution, and other days I'll say I'm, I'm trying to run the world. But, you know, in, in all seriousness, I love, love giving back in whatever way I can. My favorite moments are helping others through the challenges that I've gone through. And I still have a lot of challenges to overcome, but so many people have been so gracious with their time, with their efforts in helping me get to where I'm at today. So I am part of the Kraft Heinz Incubator Accelerator Program called Springboard. And we are all so busy, but I love those opportunities when we get to sit together and share information and I get the chance to help coach these entrepreneurs who are amazing, but may not have the 12 years of CPG experience that I have, right? And so people ask me what I do. I say, I'm a coach, I'm a leader, I'm a teacher, I'm a, I'm a learner. But generally speaking, I'm someone who's just trying to bring better health and wellness to the world and do it through great products, authenticity, simplicity, and joy. Yeah, I think for me, what stood out the most about you is just your willingness to help. And, and truly is rooted at your core to, to help others. And and I'm interested in that origin story. When, when you were growing up, you were young. Did you always think at some point you'd become an entrepreneur? No, it's funny how my life is is transpired over time. I tell this story constantly to young people. And in fact, I have a lot of students that will come to me from my job at University of Colorado who says, you know, hey, can you help me with an internship or can you help me figure out what I want to do with my life? And one thing I tell them is everyone thinks that you draw a starting point on a, on a graph, right? So a picture of an X, Y axis, you put your starting point on the bottom left, and then you're finishing your careers on the top right dot. And kind of pictures somewhat of a straight line journey between point A and point B. There might be some hiccups and some drops and kind of like a you know stock market chart that's rising, but essentially it's a straight line journey. What I tell people is imagine a huge squiggly line that's all over the place that goes from point A to point B. You really don't know where the journey is going to take you, and you have to be open to that. So I started my career, as I mentioned, in, at Goldman Sachs, a completely different world than what I'm in now. And I went that direction after actually applying to law school in college and obviously never went to law school. And so go to Goldman Sachs. And at that time, I wanted I always had the passion and leadership and I think unique ability to be both strategic, analytical and creative. But I wanted to run a company. And to me, running a company at that point was a Fortune 100 company, something like Coca-Cola or P&G or, or you know, GE or something. That was my goal. And I thought that's what it meant to be successful. You know, then when I got into CPG, consumer packaged goods at General Mills, my first kind of full-time job, I had the opportunity to launch the first gluten-free product nationally ever. And in doing that, we had an incredible journey of consumer experiences we were witness to. And one of my favorite stories that I tell ad nauseum is a, a, is a parent who wrote 
in a letter to us. And back then it was actual written letters, right? And they wrote the letter about how they bought the product and rice checks, the most boring cereal in the world. And they went upstairs that night and found their daughter under their bed uh, or under her sheets crying. And they were concerned. They ran over and she was eating the bowl of checks and she was crying because it was the first time she had real people food. In my mind, I remember it was this dramatic shift in realizing I loved how tangible what we did was. And even at a big consumer packaged goods company like General Mills, we were having these type of dramatic impacts on people's lives. And so from there on out, it really became a focus on food. It became a focus on health and wellness. And I knew I wanted to help build companies. The reality is I became very, very good at going to other people's brands, companies, small, big, medium, and making them better. I have a great track record of of all the brands I've ever worked on, improving them and and making them better, but I didn't know how to do it myself. I didn't have an idea. And so when people would ask, why don't you start your own company? I would say, well, I'm really good at making your idea better. I'm very good at analyzing. I can go into a company and in two days tell you the areas to improve or fix or or improve upon, but I didn't have an idea until Kapop. that's what really started my journey. And if you look at my path and I've done a great job of making it seem like there was a strategic decision point at every, at every line. And I tell that story very effectively. Truth is some decisions in retrospect were lucky. I just got lucky, but, but things worked out and they usually do for most people. Yeah. The truth behind all of this is, is the key. And so many people from the outside looking in just expect it to be like you mentioned that straight line from A to B and it's not the case at all. You mentioned you could go in and basically make any company better. When you'd approach a company, you'd see their inner workings. What was going through your head? Why were you so good at doing this? That's a great question. And one day when I have the great answer to that, I might write a book. I will tell you this. is I And I teach this at University of Colorado as well. I fundamentally believe, and I truly believe this, and this comes down to, to Marketing 101, that every business can be improved by a solid focus on the four P's, product, placement, promotion, and pricing. And I really, really fundamentally believe that. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. Each of those four P's has about a thousand layers deep and has a lot of complexity towards them. But usually the concern, opportunities, companies going well or companies not going well, it fundamentally goes down to one or more of those areas that you need to focus on. And so that's how I approach it, approach, approach these companies. I go in, I usually do some type of, you know, interview process. The other thing that I would always do in these companies before I got there, if I had the chance or after I got there, if I didn't is a white paper analysis. Let me go through your company from a PL perspective, understand every single line, what's driving it, how to think about it, and then we'll identify the areas that need to be improved. And that process can happen relatively quick if you're structured. So I don't want to gloss over one area that I just mentioned, which is the analytical framework. And this is the, the benefit I've had in my career and why I've risen so fast, I think, in general, is because I had this foundation of analytics with Goldman. There's a lot of people in our world who understand the importance of finance, but don't necessarily know how to use analytics, financial modeling, forecasting, P&Ls to drive their business. I fundamentally believe that everything starts and ends with the P&L and not just in an analytical way. You know, you can look at sales and you can drive all these forecasts you want. There's a lot of qualitative aspects that drive sales. You can look at marketing the same way, distribution, COGS. All of them are both quantitative 
and qualitative. And I think that's how I approach it. Approach jobs, put those into the four P's, and usually you can figure out the way to uh, to move companies pretty quickly. I was very fascinated when you mentioned your time at Goldman and was going to ask you what you walked away learning the most. And it sounds like that analytical framework could have been the key. Was there anything else you took away from your time at Goldman? The ability to work seven days in a row with no sleep and uh, generally uh, uh, zero life outside of work, but not in all seriousness. Um, I, I learned quite a bit. It's, it's an incredibly difficult place to work. Um, so I, going back to what I just said, I learned both qualitative and quantitative things. The, the rigor with which your quantitative analysis needs to be done at Goldman with zero mistakes made has really dictated my life going forward. To a fault, some people might say, but I, I am very, very precise on detail, very precise on analytics and how numbers play a role in building a company. Every single part of the company needs to be driven by analytics. And so I'm very, very passionate about that. But all joking aside, I do think the work ethic, the drive, the determination, being around people who were just unbelievably brilliant at what they did constantly drove me, constantly pushed me. It did take a while to lose some of the edge that it gave me and become a little bit more of a humble human being again. But but uh, I think it took only about 20 years, but finally got out there. But uh, I do think it's an, it's an incredible foundation. And if I actually elaborate a little bit on that, one thing I tell people also, if they have the opportunity to start at these well-known, well-regarded companies earlier in their career, you may be frustrated because they're very stagnant, they're very big, they're bureaucratic, you get put in this box, which goes against everything that I stand for. But the training, the lessons, the growth is invaluable for the future of your career. And so that's a huge opportunity. I had the chance to do that twice in my career, the first at Goldman. And then after business school at Kellogg, I went to General Mills, which is you know a great, incredible consumer packaged goods company. So I, I've had the opportunity to do that twice. Yeah, you started off answering the question, almost joking about how much time you'd spend working. And I was actually really intrigued by that. I'm close with a few people who actually started off at Goldman as well. And that work ethic, the ability to put in that many hours, were you like that prior to your time at Goldman Sachs? Or did you learn about extremely hard work and the time allocation you needed to put into doing something great? It's interesting. Uh, part of my self-development and looking back at my life, is, the answer is actually no. I was very dedicated to sports. I was very dedicated to the things I found passionate in my life, but I really did not have that work ethic at all. It's almost comical. I was the guy at Goldman who was just couldn't believe how hard people were working and how many hours people were putting in. It really was mind boggling to me. And I really struggled with it for quite some time. I don't think it really hit me until, you know, one or two jobs after Goldman or maybe the next job where I understood why that dedication mattered. And I look back and you know, it's one of those areas where I wish I could go back and have put in that 110% effort that I believe in now. But I do think part of that process was understanding how hard these jobs are, what it takes to be successful, why people work that hard, what that dedication looks like, and how to overcome those challenges. But I will tell you, it's, it's quite fine. And being someone now who arguably puts in more hours than anybody else and works incredibly hard. 
I was not like that early in my career at all. So it's 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 almost humorous a bit to see that transition occurred. I don't know what it was exactly, but something happened. That is really interesting. You mentioned the amount of brilliant people working there, seeing some other work ethics. How much did you take on just through osmosis and seeing how other people executed and answered and solved problems? You know, you're early in your life, especially at that time when you graduate college and you have the opportunity to go somewhere like Goldman that carries a lot of quote unquote sex appeal and it's very, you know, you get paid well, it's, you have a bit of arrogance and maybe not a bit of underplaying it. <laughs> you have quite a bit of arrogance. And the reality is it's hard to look at others. You see them as competition. You are constantly trying to up yourself. So again, it's one of those things at the time, I don't think maybe played in as much as I wish it could have as I've matured, but I do think there's this osmosis of being around these people who are brilliant and striving to be like them through competition. I'm a huge fan of competition. I think done correctly, competition is one of the best things that exist in our world, whether for young kids, adults alike, and whether it's formal competition or you just trying to be better to match your peers, I think is fantastic. Most people know this who do play sports. If you play tennis, for instance, and you play tennis against someone better than you, you're going to try and play up a level. You're going to do your best to play against them. And when you play someone who's not as good as you, you're going to typically play down. And it's conscious and subconscious. And I think the same thing happens in our work lives. So I think through the osmosis process, through the competitive nature, through the gung-ho spirit, I was able to up my level, learn an immense amount about analytics, finance, Excel, through these incredible people, even if at the time I thought I was just trying to compete against them. Can we dive deeper on arrogance, both how you were viewing it at the time and then how you view that today? Yeah, I, I, I am happy to admit, maybe not happy to admit, but I, I will admit that you know a lot of people who probably knew me earlier in my life and probably even to a certain extent still, uh, there's a bit of an arrogance to me. And I think some of that comes through, honestly, in that I am six foot six. I'm a big guy. I work out a lot. So there's there's the presence factor. And so I, I would argue some of it, hopefully, is self-confidence. But the reality is there is an arrogance when you've had the opportunity to work at a Goldman and I've moved up quickly in my career. And I don't think I handled all those as well as I could have. And I think the most fascinating piece about this job that I have now is how humbling it's been, how much it's made me more vulnerable. I would never, never admit to anyone three years ago that something was going to bring me to tears or that something was even emotional or that I've struggled or that I've learned a ton. These words that I use that might sound very simple to you and very obvious are words and phrases that I would have steered away from because I would have thought they might make me feel weak or people would not trust me or respect me. And I think there's a tremendous amount of respect that comes from people that can admit they're struggling, that need help, that are going through difficult times, and to have people around you that help you through that. So to throw a compliment, a huge compliment out to my kind of sidekick, who is Haley, who works on my team, you know, she's been there through that ride with me for the entirety of it and helps me through that. Uh, those issues and those difficult times and vice versa, because she has those too. And, and being able to go through that with people and my wife and my kids, is, it's incredible. So it's been very humbling. Uh, and I think my arrogance level has decreased significantly 
through this job. So worst case scenario, no matter what happens, I've, I've evolved as a human um, through this process for, for all the good and bad that has come with uh, the learning process along the way. Yeah, evolving through the years, you mentioned how the arrogance level has dropped down. What about the self-confidence, though? You mentioned you had self-confidence when you were younger. You still have it today. Has that dropped down or has that even risen? That's, you know, I think it's it's risen. It's it's like that chart. I probably actually, as I think about it, it's all over the place and it depends on the moment on the day. After a big sale, I'm probably really self-confident, but uh, maybe borderline arrogant again. But the reality is that I think the self-confidence grows daily as I overcome these challenges. So I cannot thank my support network enough, like Haley, my wife, Christina, my kids, all the investors that we have, all my friends and mentors. These people help me significantly. And without their help, I don't think I would have the self-confidence. Self-confidence doesn't come just through yourself. Self-confidence comes through through the ability to reach out to other people for help and knowing that other people are willing to help you. And that for me is, is the amazing thing. I have these people like Alan Murray, the CEO of Goodbelly, Errol Schweitzer, the ex-head of Whole Foods Grocery, uh, Mason Phelps, some of my good friends, Matt Atwater, Haley, all these people who are there no matter what time of day, what time of night, willing to help me through business problems, through personal challenges. That's where self-confidence comes from. And that's the humbling factor I've learned over the last couple of years versus this complete reliance on myself and this thinking that if you ask for help, you're weak. That's not self-confidence. You mentioned some of the most important people in the CPG industry. Why are they in your corner? What have you done throughout the years to be able to pick up the phone at any time and call them for support? You know, I wish I could answer that question. I am so grateful for their help and what they are willing to do for me. And I honestly have no idea. I, I really can't question. I joke about it all the time. I'm like, why do these people want to help me? Why are these people so helpful to me? I think some of it, honestly, is there's a give back mentality in our in our world, especially in the Boulder food, food world. People are so willing to meet with you and share advice because someone did it for them. So that's the first part. I think the second part is... I put a huge effort into networking at one stage in my career, and then I maintained that. And I tell people now, I networked when I didn't need something. I built a huge network when I just wanted to meet and learn from people. And I had the opportunity to do that, and some people don't. But I spent literally six months just building this network and really focusing on meeting as many people as I could, knowing that you know eight out of 10 meetings are probably not gonna go anywhere, but, I was meeting new people and those people would introduce me to other people. And that's where I met a lot of these great resources and mentors that I have now. But to answer why they're, they're in my court and why they're so supportive, you have to ask them, but I just am eternally grateful and, and I hope they all re realize how much it means to have them in my court. Is there anything unique you do or have done throughout the years to build upon that network? Maybe it's a follow-up after a meeting or anything along the lines of that. I think, I, I, as I mentioned, I think the first thing is trying to network where you're not going in asking for something, especially on that first meeting. 
right? I think there's this mentality of I'm going to go try. I need to find a job. So I'm going to go try and meet someone to get a job or I need to raise money or I need this. If you can honestly go into a meeting just for the sake of getting to know someone new, I think people realize that when you're meeting with them and they're more eager to build a relationship than when they're kind of on the defensive of like, oh, God, I don't have a job or I don't have the money or whatever. That's the first thing. But even aside from that, I treat them with with a lot of respect, you know, whether they're more junior than me, more experienced than me, rich or poor. I treat them with a ton of respect because I believe this philosophy that everyone has something to offer you. And I don't mean this way. I mean, you can learn something from every single person you meet. And so I try and do that. And even when I sit on the plane now, I always start a conversation with the person next to me quickly. And I'm not one of those that's going to talk your ear off, but hey, maybe there's a connection there. My favorite story about that is I was flying back from Minneapolis to Denver and I was sitting in first class, fortunately, thanks for a nice upgrade. And I sat next to this guy and we started to talk, same philosophy, like, hey, let's talk. Let's see if there's any connection there. And we started talking and he mentioned he's an investor in some early food brands. And this is before I had even started the process of this business. And I said to him, well, you know, I have this idea. I've been thinking about it. And he asked me about my background. He's like, look, man, you have every quality I would ever look for in an entrepreneur. Most of us invest in people, not ideas. But you seem to have a great idea, a great background, incredibly passionate. I would invest in you. And lo and behold, he was my first investor ever in this company. This random guy on a plane from Minneapolis to Denver. So, you know, again. You just go in with open mind to meet people, to learn from people. You'll never know where that goes. I absolutely love that quote. Everyone has something to offer you. I think that's so refreshing. And one, people need to write down, go back to that and remember that. Like you mentioned, your first investor comes from a chance conversation you have while on the plane. We're diving a lot into your story. I'm really fascinated though and interested. What made you choose Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management? It's actually a really easy story. I, I, when I applied to business school, it starts maybe a bit arrogantly too. <laughs> like most of my stories back in those days. But I said I was only going to go to business school if I could go to a top five business school. I didn't think the investment and the opportunity cost was worth it unless I could do that. Now, I don't know if I completely agree with that still, but um, I ended up you know, studying really hard for the GMAT. And I have this mentality, as people get to know me, they know this, that when I do something, I do it 110%. My 80-20 rule is this. The 80% you choose to do, you do it at 110%. And so I put everything I had into the GMAT, into applying and interviewing and networking at the different schools. And I ended up getting into all the schools I applied to. And so they all have these, these day-at programs where you fly in and they take you to a couple classes. You meet other prospective students. You party. You eat. You have a lot of fun. And the interesting thing to me is everywhere I went, all the people that I was really close with, and you end up kind of following the same crowd, they all were deciding to go to Kellogg. And so my decision was made based on the peers around me and the culture that Kellogg obviously engendered because of all the people that were going to go there. And these were all the same people that I really enjoyed being around, whether I was at University of Chicago or Wharton or whatever. So... That was the key reason I chose there. Now, that's played through because Kellogg is very much a student-driven organization. All the programs are led by students. The honor code is led by students. The classes are all team-based. Everything is student-led. 
and organized and done in a manner that you have the chance to lead, to follow, to just be part of a team. My biggest investors in my company now all come from Kellogg as well. So there's just an incredible atmosphere at Kellogg that I can't speak more proudly about than what you create through these friendships, through these relationships, and through the people that go there. At the start of that, you mentioned opportunity cost. When you're weighing the opportunity cost of something, is that all internal? Are you writing things down? How do you actually weigh that opportunity cost? It depends on how complicated the decision is and how committed I am to a decision. So I actually, as I mentioned, believe everything can be quantified. So I even try and quantify hiring new employees. I quantify everything that we do as a company. And I try and do that in my personal life as well. I'm not, you know, literally every time I try and go out to eat, quantifying the opportunity cost of staying home versus going out, for instance. So I'm not that bad. But I do look at these areas to understand what the quote unquote ROI is going to look like. So when I was looking at Kellogg, it was absolutely a decision. I was making, you know, six figure income. I was doing well in my career. You're going to take two years off, lose your salary for two years, pay all this money to go to school, have debt most likely. And also knowing that I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do post Kellogg. Now, they don't want to hear that because they want you to be crystal clear. And in fact, I do believe going into business school with clarity around what you want to accomplish will make the experience significantly better from an academic perspective. But that being said, I absolutely looked at that. And for me, the network I was going to build, the opportunity to change paths, to really get back to running a company, which was my goal, outweighed any of the costs. And frankly, Look, when you go to business school, most times you're in your 20s, your late 20s, you're still very young. And I figured I had been successful. Worst case scenario, I could go back into investment banking and try and recapture the money if I needed to. I'm interested you mentioned, even in your own personal life, the decisions you make. Have you ever read the book uh, by Annie Duke, Thinking and Bets? I have not. It sounds interesting, though. It's actually the book that's come up more on this podcast than any other book, and it sounds right up your alley. So it just maybe think of you. I actually want to dive specifically into Kapop right now. I mean, the first time you started your own brand, what was really the precipice to, to you beginning a new brand and taking on such a big venture? Well, everyone always asks, why don't you start your own brand instead of going to these other companies? And I would always say, because I do not have a good idea. And I'm very critical of new ideas. I'm very you know, borderline pessimistic. I would call it realistic, but some might call it pessimistic. And I really find fault. You know, you're in a world now where there's 40, 50,000 products in a grocery store. There's not a single aisle that's not fragmented and incredibly vulnerable to, to new competition. The barriers to entry are low. So it's just, it's very difficult. So I, I, you know, like I said, I was very good at going into other people's companies and that was a job I really enjoyed doing. But this was also the time where I got significantly injured uh, working out and it was all on me because I, everyone always likes to point out you know, the aggressiveness of some of the workouts I do, but it was my arrogance that led to this injury, but I tore my pack, AC joint and bicep all at once. So it was a pretty gnarly injury. And I wasn't going to be able to work out for quite some time. And I tend to have this linked path that when I work out, I eat well. When I eat well, I work out. And so when that chain gets disrupted, it really causes kind of trauma to my emotional well-being. And so I started eating kind of the better-for-you products out there, like better-for-you popcorn, you know, quote-unquote, better-for-you chips, better-for-you snacks. 
And after you know a month or two of doing this, I realized, A, I wasn't feeling great. B, there was no nutrition in these products. There had to be a better way. And despite all my experience, this really comes back to most entrepreneurs starting place. There has to be a better way. So I went into my pantry and being someone who's been paleo for about 10 years at that time, someone who really believes in the health and nutrition of kind of ancient grains, ancient products. I had quinoa, sorghum, a bunch of different ancient grains in my pantry. And I said, what if you pop these? I wonder if you can pop these like popcorn. So I stuck them on the stove and I popped it. And out came these burnt little pieces of popped sorghum and camut and, and quinoa. But it tasted great and it was so densely nutritious. I mean, every serving had a ton of protein and fiber and it tasted just like popcorn, although it was tiny and burnt. And I started giving it to my kids and my kids loved it. My wife loved it. The people around the neighborhood loved it. And I was like, I'm onto something. So I went to Expo West 2016 and Expo West is the world's largest natural food conference in Anaheim every March. And I took it to some of people, some of the people I knew in private equity, some people from Whole Foods. And I'm literally bringing this Ziploc bag of burnt crap, as I called it. Hey, I got an idea. What do you think? But the reactions were so positive, both in concept and, again, in supporting the person, i.e., they believed that I could take this and go somewhere. And that was the start of the start of Kapop. I, I kind of pushed aside some of the other responsibilities I had at that time and and ended up focusing 100% or 98% on Kapop, and the rest is is history, so they say. But it's been a journey. That happened. The the stovetop occurrence happened in October of 2015. I launched on April 20th, 2018, to give you an idea of that process and the time it took and the work involved. So with that being said, it's it's a few days later. We just celebrated our one-year anniversary on Saturday, April 20th, 2018, and it was a, a great moment moment for all of us. Well, congratulations on the one year. I want to jump back into that process, but we need to take a little detour. What what exercise were you doing to, to destroy the AC, the bicep, and the tricep all at once? <laughs> uh, I was doing a bar muscle-up. So this was a CrossFit open workout, and the, I had done the workout on a Friday, and it's a 20-minute workout, and I didn't do as well, well as I wanted to do. And so stupidly enough, I was like, you know, I should do this again on Sunday. And for anyone who knows CrossFit open workouts, they are intense. I mean, they take it out of you. You don't want, you may want to do it again a year after you do the first time, but I did it two days later and I get to the bar muscle ups and my body's still pretty fatigued from the Friday workout. And I probably worked on on Saturday as well. And I'm doing it in 19, it's a 20 minute workout, 1958, the last rep I'm going to do. And I get over on my right arm. If you know what a muscle up is. And I'm struggling to get my left arm up, up, up. And I thought the bar broke. I jump off and I look up. I say to everyone around me, my shirt's off. Hey, guys, the bar just broke. And everyone's looking at me like I'm out of my mind. And I slowly look up to realize the bar hasn't moved. <laughs> and things start to kind of come together. And I realize something was seriously wrong. And, and I won't go into too much visual because it's not enjoyable to hear. But uh, from there... It turned into a, obviously a, a rush to the ER and, and a lot of fun after that. Yeah, a lot of fun. I can imagine that. Have you been able to recover? I asked solely because I've had some serious AC injuries, nerve damage over a decade ago, and I am still recovering. So I'm wondering if there's anything that you've found that works really well. You're going to hate me for saying this, but the doctor initially prognosed me to be out nine plus months, and I ended up being fully recovered in six months. 
<laughs> and I am back to four. I still will not do a muscle up. I am, I will never probably do a muscle up again, but I am back full strength. The, the trick for me was, um, you know, and I don't know all the things that worked because some of it could have been placebo. Some of it could have been one versus the other, but I did everything I could to recover. So I went to PT twice per day. I t- did PRP. Um, I did a lot of stretching. I did yoga. I did rolling out. But there was one book in particular that I will probably need to look up for you because it's not on top of my mind, but it was written by an ex-convict. And I saw it in my orthopedist office. And by the way, that is also one factor. My orthopedic surgeon was an athlete and he believed in sports and recovery. He wasn't one of these that looked down upon CrossFit or looked down upon working out. So that I think really helped in both his mentality and support for where I wanted to get back to. It really made a difference. But there was a book in his office, a, a convict conditioning is what it's called, I believe. And it was written by this, this person who used to be in jail and he would train all these guys in jail and he learned how to train people who really had never worked out and in the confines of a whatever eight by 10 cell or whatever the cells are. Thankfully I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> so, but he takes you through a step-by-step process. Step one through a master step and it's usually eight to 10 steps. And first step on push-ups when I was recovering, it's, it's wall push-ups and you would have to check the box before you can move on to the other. And it really took this, fundamental approach of you had to do, I think, three sets of 50 wall pushups to move to step two. That sounds really easy and it's easy now, but that was like murder. But I was determined to not skip a step, to not miss a day, to not, uh, I put everything into my body, like collagen, protein, fiber. So I I was 100% dedicated to getting healthy and it, it played out well for me. That's a book I've never heard of, so I'm going to have to look that one up. So we'll dive back into Kapop now. Sorry for that little detour there, but I'm really interested in that. <laughs> you mentioned the timeline, and starting in October of 2015, you just recently celebrated your year. Can you dive deeper into what that process looks like and some of the big steps you have to overcome to get there? Yeah, that's a, it's an incredible journey and one that we could spend hours talking about. But to summarize I believe in the consumer experience needing to be really flawless as much as possible when you launch. There's this kind of argument between just getting something out there, getting feedback and improving versus, you know, getting it all right. And a book I read around that time was Steve Jobs biography. It really resonated with me on how much focus he put on every single aspect of the consumer experience, every screw that went into the product. If you think about when you buy an Apple iPhone, and it's ironic because I'm an Android Galaxy guy, but (laughs) either way, when you think about buying an iPhone, the packaging, the experience, the genius bars, the stores, he cared about every single detail of that user experience. And I constantly tell my team and those around me that every one of our experiences with a consumer, we got one shot. As a small startup brand, we're likely not going to get a second shot if we mess up that experience. And so a big chunk of that time was fine tuning the experience. To dive into more specifics, it was what's the brand? What's the name? I mean, finding the right name took forever. What's the right name? How do we articulate this idea and concept through packaging? Your number one marketing vehicle is your packaging, especially as a small brand. So how do we think about that execution? What are the flavors we want to launch with? The irony in this is funny story to digress for one second. We have four flavors right now. We're about to launch a couple others, but we have rosemary, garlic, 
dairy-free cheddar, salt and vinegar, and olive oil and sea salt. Now I was debating between launching three and four flavors. So the flavor that was on the cusp was rosemary and garlic. And I called Haley, who now works for me. At the time, she was kind of helping out with some projects. And she was at a bachelorette party in New Orleans. And I said, and she had the product with her. And I said, all right, get the group's consensus, rosemary versus this other flavor. I don't even remember the other flavor. And everyone loved the rosemary garlic. So this bachelorette party was the final sample group that I used. After 15 years of CPG experience, this is healthy consumer research. Um, and we ended up launching rosemary garlic. And thankfully, because it's by far our number one seller, which is ironic, but going through flavor development, finding the right manufacturing partner, um, executing the right platform. Now, now, here's the real story for us, though. In January of 2018, remember, we launched April 20th, 2018. In January of 2018, we were still a popped sorghum company, i.e. the popcorn using ancient grains. We pivoted to chips basically in that month and had to kind of change everything we were doing in the last four months. Because at that point, I'd really communicated to my investors, to the marketplace, to retailers that we were launching in April. And I wanted to hold to that. So that was an interesting journey in itself because it was one of those times as an entrepreneur, you have to learn when to take the feedback you get and do something about it and when to ignore the feedback you get and be persistent run through the wall and ignore the naysayers. And I had ignored the naysayers for a year. And I finally dawned on me that I needed to kind of change formats into the chip. And, and thank goodness, because I think it's been the huge success factor for, for Kapop. But the journey, all those pieces of the P&L that I mentioned were, were basically what I was working on through those two years prior to launch. Wait, Dustin, what was the feedback you received that you decided to pivot at such a drastic and important time in the company? You know, it wasn't all tangible feedback. It wasn't like people were necessarily seeing or saying things. It was what I was seeing. People loved the pop sorghum and they still do. And there's a couple brands out there that have launched with that product. And I, and I love those guys and very supportive. But when you look at the eating experience, People love the product, but it was making a mess when they were eating it. It's getting all over the place. Think about pop sorghum as the size of those, like the little 10 tenders or, you know, kernels at the end of a popcorn bag, right? They're really, really tiny. And so people were making a mess. I mean, in fact, I literally had my son eat a bag of pop sorghum this past weekend. And I kid you not, there was a track of his pop sorghum from our house to our friend's house down the street, like a trail that I could follow. And you know, it was those experiences I was watching that moms would have their kids eat it when I was testing it and everyone would love it. But I'd kind of look after and see this mess or I'd see issues with the eating experience and how the kids were trying to eat it, how the mom was trying to eat it. They'd have to put it into different formats. And so I realized over time that I thought, hey, I get great initial tra uh, transactions with this, but I needed to find a different format to get the same value to consumers. That being said, I really do want to make it clear that I'm very supportive of that product and what people are doing with it, because I do think it's an incredible product. But for us and for what I was trying to do, I thought that was a, a pivot point that I needed to make. I'm also intrigued about how do you develop the investor confidence when you're a couple months away from launch and you completely pivot like that? How important is that to you? <laughs> it's incredibly important. I would say... The investors are one of the most important pieces to me, especially those that came in pre-revenue, but at any stage of the company, because you know, these people came into my world where I didn't have proof of concept. They were betting on me. 
They were betting on me to be able to figure these things out, to articulate how to grow a company. And, you know, some of these investors invested very early in the idea stage. So they came in when it was just this pie in the sky idea, right? Like the guy in the airplane <laughs> versus, you know, maybe someone came in later, but all of them were betting on my ability to do this. And so when I made that pivot, the very first thing I did was reach out to all these investors, get them the new product, walk them through the exact story I just shared with you. And I would say nine times out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, I think they all appreciated and respected me for doing that decision. And in fact, I think it engendered more confidence in my ability as a leader because I was willing and able to make that pivot and do what's right for the business versus marching down a path that probably would have not worked out for us. When you were raising money, you obviously reached out to a ton of people in your network who are experienced in this. Did you do anything with friends and family? Absolutely. The funny thing is for me, friends and family is a weird term for me because a lot of my friends are senior people in the food industry now. So it's a bit of a misnomer in the way you're describing it for me. Um, but yes, I absolutely went to friends and family and I also went to people in the food industry. And my, my, my uh, cap table is probably about 50-50, give or take, on my friends and family outside of the food world with my friends in the food world. Um, but there is a high overlap. I mean, I can, one of my investors uh, who is a private equity investor in the food world, I went to business school with. So there is a high overlap uh, with my friends and family um, in this investment round. But generally speaking, it's probably 60, 40, 50, 50, somewhere around there. Uh, the friends to, uh, to the sophisticated food people that you guys all probably know. I don't know if you experienced this at all, and if not, I'd love if you could speak to someone maybe going through this. They're raising friends and family money. What do you do with the folks not being accredited investors and the potentials of that in the future? How do you manage that? That's a great question. I think, number one, you need to be sensitive to that with those people. I have friends who didn't have a lot of money that really wanted to invest in the company. And I really sat them down and had very clear conversations with them around what it means to invest, what it takes to, to do a company like this, the risk involved in this, how serious the risk is. I mean, it's, a, it's fairly binary, right, in a company like this. Like either we're going to be successful or we're going to fail. And there's a high risk reward premium on that. And so I believe in, in a big piece is authenticity really being clear about the risks, really being transparent about the challenges involved in launching a company like ours. And so that was a big factor for me because I don't wanna lose, I'd rather not take your money and maintain your support as a friend than take your money and lose you as a friend. It's not worth it to me. And so that was a big factor, but it doesn't change. And I, and I wanna be very, very clear about this, at least in my perspective, and, and Haley knows I preach on this all the time. It doesn't matter if someone's a billionaire and gives you $25,000 and you're like, oh, it's a chunk. It's, it's nothing to them. It is something to them. And it should mean a lot to you because they are betting on you as a company at this stage. It's not, you know, you haven't made $20 million and they're betting on just making money for themselves. They obviously want to make money, but they're betting on you. And I take everyone's investment, regardless if you're a hundred millionaire or a hundred thousandaire very, very seriously because of what they've committed to and what they're believing in. And, and I, 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 everyone who works for us and works with 
with us, I make sure they are crystal clear on my belief about that. Over a hundred plus interviews for this podcast. I think that's one of the best answers I've ever received. That's one people should go back, listen to some unbelievable practical advice there. So you've raised some money. How do you handle the cash management early stages? Uh, not even necessarily specific to your company, but what should a young entrepreneur be thinking about? That's one of the things that's been this weird uh, plus and con. And by the way, thank you for that comment. It means a lot, but it's been one of the plus and, and minuses to my experience. There's something about coming into a company with, with not a lot of experience because the idea of ignorance is bliss, right? I, on the other hand, kind of see all the red flags and the roadblocks and the things coming our way, and it does impact how I think about things. And one of the things I saw going into a lot of small companies as an interim CEO or CMO or actual CEO is how cash was spent. And in my experience, most people do not manage cash effectively, whether it's through the hiring of people, hiring too many people, spending money on things that aren't driving good ROIs. And by the way, I've made plenty of mistakes in that area too, just for the record. But I came in very, very cash conscious. And it's kind of hit me in the rear actually at this point, because as I mentioned, our biggest resource constraint right now is time. I've waited too long to add the third member to our team because I really wanted to make sure we were at full, full capacity and we weren't, quote unquote, wasting money on another employee that wasn't going to be uh, completely busy and adding value to the company. And we've kind of gone too far and the pendulum swung too far. So there is there is a an area where you do have to be thoughtful about the growth of the company. But to specific answer to your question, every dollar you spend needs to drive value to your company. Every single dollar you spend needs to drive value to the company. There's so many ways to be frivolous with your spends in this world. I mean, you think about all the trade shows out there, all the marketing opportunities, all the vendors, all the influencers, all the sampling. You think about all of those opportunities to spend money that all sound great. Even to somebody like me, you just gotta make a decision. The hardest thing as an entrepreneur, and by the way, this is so much harder sitting in the seat I'm sitting in than when I went into companies from the outside, is saying no to good ideas. I used to preach to entrepreneurs all the time that you're going to have to say no to good ideas. You're going to have to say no to the shiny object that is glaring you in the face. But man, it's so much harder doing it in the seat with your own company than it is telling somebody else to do that for sure. So it's a do as I say, maybe not as I do all the time. Well, I mean, I, I know you're an expert marketer. So you just mentioned all of those unbelievable things everyone's seeing right now in 2019. What's your decision-making process for, for what to move forward with? There's this balance between gut and analytics, right? Uh, using my experience, a lot of times though, you know, I, I, I appreciate you saying I'm an expert marketer, but you know, my marketing skill set has been at companies that are couple million in sales, 10 million in sales, 20, 100 million in sales, not someone that's, you know, a year old, right? So it is a learning curve for me too, in thinking about what's the right marketing spend at this stage? What's the right marketing spend when we're regionally focused on different retailers and with Amazon? And so there's a lot of due diligence I make, uh, uh, or I do with each of the people who try and propose something to me. But one thing that I push, and I'm very big on with the agencies and vendors that come to me, is honestly asking them to put their money where their mouth is. Is if you're really good at what you do and this is gonna drive this much value, okay, fine, let's, how do we make this a win-win scenario? So if you're gonna, I'm making up these numbers obviously, but if you're gonna charge me $1,000 for something, well, why don't you charge me $700, but hey, if it does what it says it's gonna do, 
I'll give you $1,100. And if it does better than you say it's going to do, I'm going to give you $1,300. So you actually are going to give them more a reward for doing what they said they're going to do, but you're going to get the discount on the front side. It doesn't work all the time. In fact, it's more of a rarity. But I think it's important for these companies to realize when you're coming to startups, we are very cash conscious. We are very cash poor and we need to make good decisions. And if you want to work with us, you need to see us as an investment, just like we're seeing you as an investment. And that's something I try and push um, with limited success. But, but I know when I do get success, it's the right partner for us. I love that creative problem solving. If we're looking at marketing in 2019, are there any new channels, things that you're intrigued by, maybe you haven't tried out yet, but are really interested and think consumer behavior could be going towards that? I don't know if there's anything I, I haven't tried or, or is new to me. There probably is. I just haven't heard of it yet because that changes every day. But I will say a couple areas that are incredibly impressive to me and how they're changing and transforming our landscape, none of which are probably not known to your audience, but obviously Amazon. The world of Amazon is changing and shifting how consumers are operating and how retailers are operating. And here's what I mean by that. On the retailer front, if you think about moms nowadays, the growth in moms ordering groceries online and either getting them delivered or like what we do with King Supers, we order online and we go pick it up. So what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is if you're a new brand, how do you get discovered, right? You're not, they're not walking the stores. So they're not going to see your secondary placement. They're not going to see your new packaging. They're just ordering what they already know and picking it up. So overcoming that challenge is a huge hurdle and figuring out the right ways to do that. And, and if you ask me how, still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> Amazon, food is one of the fastest growing areas on Amazon and people ordering it. And 60% of all product searches start on Amazon. Google's largest competitor is not Yahoo, it's Amazon. And so how to think about driving awareness on Amazon. Amazon used to be a place where you discover it in you know, Best Buy or your grocery store and then go order it. People are discovering and learning about things on Amazon. So again, how do you change your marketing tactics to drive awareness, not just purchase on Amazon? And then finally, obviously, and this isn't new, but the, the world of influencers and Instagramming and Facebook and all those things with their algorithms constantly changing, it's, uh, you know, I don't have the answers. These are the things that are the biggest learning areas for me. I'm a brick and mortar guy. I grew up in the brick and mortar retail world. So this has probably been one of the biggest learning areas, but we're learning quickly and, and we've got great partners that are really helping and anyone who's interested out there to reach out, I'm happy to share my network of great people helping us, but it's uh, it's been a learning journey for sure. Well, Dustin, I appreciate you being humble there and even saying that you don't necessarily know. So it, it's comforting to someone like myself who's still trying to navigate that as well. You, you mentioned for people being able to reach out. Let's first touch on Kapop. What's going on with you guys in the next year? You just celebrated one year. What, what can consumers be on the lookout for? Well, besides taking over the chip category, um, <laughs> there's the arrogance coming back. No, the... Um, a couple of fun things that are happening that are, are coming live. So we're part of the Kraft Heinz Springboard Incubator Program that started right after Expo West. It ends at the end of June, and it's been a tremendous experience. It allows us to have the resources of Kraft, access to their sales team, R&D, et cetera. So, you know, candidly, I don't know exactly what will come out of that, but we've already got a lot of great things in progress through the partnership with them. We were also selected by 7-Eleven as part of their next program, which is really exciting. So they're doing a 
150 to 200 store tests in California, creating a health and wellness end cap, so to speak, in all of these stores. And they're going to support it heavily with media and PR and demos. And we were one of the 20 brands selected for that uh, as well. So we have about six spacings and we're really excited by that prospect to really bring that growth into that channel, but also that consumer. We have a few new accounts opening. We just opened Safeway Denver. We're opening Whole Foods Rocky Mountain in August. And I hope to add a few more retailers to that. But uh, my favorite things that we have coming up are also hiring a few people. So if anyone's interested, take a look at our, our job postings. But also two new flavors. We have a red and green sriracha that we'll be launching and a sweet flavor that will be named soon. But the red and green sriracha Holy mackerel. I really believe it'll, it might replace rosemary garlic. It is outstanding. It's probably one of our best flavors. It's it's going to be phenomenal. Well, the listeners know that the saying, I'm obsessed with momentum breeds momentum. You guys clearly have a ton of momentum right now. It's, it's great hearing about the struggles, the successes, how you analyze business opportunities. I really did learn a lot from this one, Dustin. So where can the listeners best stay connected with you? You can always go to www.kapopsnacks.com and any email that you send through that site, I get every single email. So I respond to every single email that we get, um, at least for the next year or so. <laughs> I'll <go into> that. <laughs> I'm happy to help anyone with anything at any time. You know, we're super busy, but I will always respond and do my best to provide services and help to any budding entrepreneur or anyone out there that wants to learn more. And obviously for the product, we are out there for your listeners. Uh, if it's okay, the plug, you can use uh, the code top kapop, which is the joking title, my CEO joking title, but T O P kapop on our website for 15% off your order. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback, your comments, and really, really appreciate the time and the support. It's been, it's been a great conversation. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate the time. We will definitely have all that linked up in the show notes. But Dustin, thanks again for joining us on What Got You There. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. 
head to glowkick.com, check out what they've got going on. And you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.